and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. On today's episode, I sit down for another kitchen sink pundit conversation with my friend Dr. Jill Scheibler, because that's the kind of pundit I consider myself. One who opines, not from the stately halls of Washington, D.C., but from my busy, cluttered home. We are not professional pundits, Jill and I. We are regular people. We are political hobbyists. We are citizens who pay attention. I am grateful to Jill for indulging my desire for another round of amateur punditry. In this conversation, we discuss the presidential and vice presidential debates, the president's COVID diagnosis, the plot to kidnap Michigan's governor, absentee voting, and the tallying of absentee votes. And we talk a good bit about polling, how polling works, what it's been showing lately about the presidential race, and why we shouldn't write it off. Jill Scheibler is a community psychologist, a college professor and research coordinator, an art therapist, and the co-founder and operations and program director of the nonprofit Make Studio, which empowers artists with disabilities to grow as professionals with visibility and voice in their communities. Although not formally a student of political science, curiosity and an early interest in presidential history has led Jill to pay an increasing amount of attention to news and politics since her college years. She is interested in how governments can be made to work the best for the most, and has an affinity for underdogs. Politics watching is probably Jill's main hobby, for better or worse. She is an avid daily reader of news, from local to international. She admits to enjoying the political horse race, but not at the expense of substance. And she knows all 50 states' U.S. senators by name, if not sight. Today, Jill identifies as a left-of-center, pragmatic, progressive Democrat. This conversation was recorded on October 9th. All right. Hello, Jill. Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for coming back onto the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. So I wanted to start off by just sort of um, catching up, essentially. Like we last talked in August after the Democratic and Republican national conventions. And now we're a couple months past that point. And I just wanted to revisit what's changed since then. I mean, we've had some big things happening. It feels like <laughs> it feels like every week of this campaign is a lifetime. <laughs> and, and you look back and you think, that was only a week ago? Yeah. So, I mean, in this time, we've had the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. We've had the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Mm -hmm. We've had um, some revelations regarding Trump's taxes come out Mm -hmm. from investigative reporting at the New York Times. We've reached 200,000 Americans dead of the coronavirus. Trump himself has been diagnosed with it. We had a presidential debate that could hardly be called a debate. (laughs) It was just kind of a melee. Um, And what am I missing? There's got to be more than that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, I think you've, you've really hit all of the, the major uh, milestones 
that every every news cycle moves so quickly. I'm sure there are probably half a dozen things almost every single day. Yeah. And we're coming off of a situation where the polls for months have been very stable. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're looking at an electorate that pretty much seems to have made up its mind. And pretty reliably, uh, the Biden campaign has been about, what, eight points ahead, seven or eight mm-hmm. points ahead. And um, and so with each of these things that have happened, um, you know, it's important to think about, well, how is this going to affect the race? I mean, yeah. unless it's a dramatic change, with with that large of a lead, it almost doesn't even mean much. So the question each time has to be, is this going to be a, a big mm-hmm. improvement to Trump's prospects? And so far, I don't think any of those things will do that. I mean, the closest might be the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, because that, gen, you know, generates enthusiasm mm-hmm. yeah. in his base. Um, but by the same token, it also generates enthusiasm on the other side. So I'm not, I think that sort of is a wash. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that's been very particular to Trump, I mean, throughout his presidency, but spotlighted in terms of how his campaign has been going in the past several months is that his, he has his base. So, right. um, yeah. you know, there is that, that aspect of making sure you can secure their votes that they do come out and um, they're not going to be voting for Biden, but ensuring that they, they do get the vote out. But at the same time, he's really needed to work on making inroads with independence um, and uh, by um, Obama Trump voters from 2016. And that doesn't seem to be happening. It seems like there is a slow kind of a slow momentum gathering for Joe um, that I, I, it's not surprising. It's not that dramatic. But usually at this point, you think of a tightening in terms of maybe Joe should be losing a couple of points. But mm-hmm. maybe maybe some of these events the the accumulated events of the past couple of weeks are um, just giving Joe a few more points um, in his favor. But it's definitely been a very stable, like almost painfully stable, (laughs) if you watch the polls very closely, um, trend throughout this time. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast the other night um, where they were sort of, um, you know, talking about how stable and the race has been and somebody was like, come on, you got, you need to make it sound more interesting. They're like, oh yes, this is a, this is a race where you just never know what's going to happen next. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Trump seems really to be pursuing almost like a, um, um, a primary yeah. uh, campaign as opposed to a general election campaign. You know, he just, he's just aiming for his base. He really has not been making obvious overtures to independence and I don't know, I feel like there's been this thinking on the right for a long time that um, we are the, si- the silent majority. And if you just, if you just, you know, cater to people who are really, really conservative, then they are going to be um, excited enough to come out and they're going to show their true numbers and everything will be fine. I mean, that's, that thinking isn't new. It's been around yeah, on the Republican yeah. side for a long time. And I just don't think it's borne out. I mean, Republicans in general have a higher turnout rate than Democrats do. Mm-hmm. So it's not clear how much higher you can make it. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I, I think yeah. that's the kind of thing that it's easy for somebody who lives in a totally conservative area to believe, um, yeah. and not somebody who lives in a more mixed environment. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think different, vo- you know, different, both parties or different segments of the parties 
have different sort of forms of magical thinking around. Yeah. Yep. around. I was going <laughs> to say, sometimes the Democrats have the same sort yeah. of thinking too. Um, yeah. it, but, uh, you know, I think to the point that you're making, you know, just demographics aren't really on the side, the Republican Party side. Um, mm-hmm. it, it kind of remains to be seen how that's going to change over time. But so much of the vote that is yet to be um, won are um, people of color and younger, first potentially first-time voters. And on the issues, they tend to align more with um, the Democrats, mm-hmm. if not necessarily the Biden agenda per se. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know that youth vote is so elusive always, and um, you know they're a big chunk of the the folks to be to be had in this particular race. And so I don't know that either party is going to generate that much <laughs> youth vote right. per se. But it's a hard it was a harder slog for the um, for Trump's campaign for sure. Yeah, and then a really interesting and kind of surprising, but it probably shouldn't be so surprising, um, demographic point about this race is that Trump is also losing in the older age ranges. Yeah, that's true. Um, Mm -hmm. Normally, the Republicans can very comfortably assume um, that older voters will be on their side, but he is doing very poorly right now. Um, I think with the like, I don't know if it's like um, people in their 60s and 70s or something. Mm-hmm. And um, to a large part, that probably has to do with the pandemic. Um, yeah. You know, people who feel more vulnerable to the effects of the coronavirus are going to be more concerned about how the country handles the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but at any rate, he's losing that demographic, which is very interesting and sort of <laughs> new for the Republicans. So he's fighting it on both ends. Definitely, yeah. And he had a very sizable lead, even I think amongst recent um, presidential races, like his share of the senior vote was quite high, like notably high. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think some of that that recent polling where we're seeing Biden now um, in the double digits, um, you know, some of those polls are outliers, but mm-hmm. I think 538's aggregate today was that for in the double digits for the first time maybe at 10 points up. Um, wow. And so I think a lot of that has boiled down to seeing that movement in the in the older demographic um, that's notably shifted, I think, in the last, probably, it's not been super, super recent, not obviously just in this span of time we've been talking about with the, uh, the Trump's uh, diagnosis being part of that uh, reflection on the coronavirus response, but um, even I think for the last month, it was starting to tip that way. So it's really unusual. Mm-hmm. Interesting to see. Yeah, that is interesting. All right. Well, let's move on to discussing Wednesday's vice presidential debate. Um, I'm going to start off with a caveat, and that is that <laughs> I hate conflict. And you might not expect that of somebody who <laughs> likes to talk politics as much as I do. But I'm like allergic to conflict. I cannot take it. And so even though I'm always very eager to watch the debates and I always watch the whole thing, I am often like cringing on the sofa. Like I just can't take it. <laughs> and so sometimes it, it it gets to the point where it even like I shut down, like I cannot absorb it anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm probably not like the best person to be <laughs> analyzing a debate because I, I miss a lot because I just cannot take the conflict. So that's um, that's 
that's going to be really reassuring to anybody <laughs> listening to this podcast episode, um, except that maybe maybe they're, they're like me and they'll sympathize. <laughs> um, but I mean, all in all, it was it was a typical debate. I mean, like yeah, yeah. the presidential debate last week was like yeah, an abomination. Of it was like conflict. It was, was pointless. So yeah. saturated with with unnecessary conflict. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I just think President Trump tried to steamroll Joe Biden and um and there's no way really to deal with that situation. Like there's no good way to deal with that situation. There's no way to win when you're being steamrolled. Um yeah. so I definitely don't think Biden quote won. But um, and so, I mean, in some ways he handled it okay. In some ways he didn't. I think it was more that Trump lost because of how he behaved in it. Yeah. Yeah. If if he had taken a more, you know, traditional, for lack of Mm -hmm. a a good descriptor, (laughs) approach, he would have been able to probably, you know, make something of the moments where Joe might have not been prepared. Um, sure. Or had, you know, an answer that wasn't, you know, satisfactory to a lot of the the viewership. But because of his approach, there was never even an opportunity to, you know, take advantage of those opportunities. So. Right. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think Trump squandered his opportunity because, you know, there, there was the potential for Biden to make a big gaffe or to show that he wasn't up to like a really like intelligent debate. Um, mm-hmm. but he was never given the opportunity because Trump steamrolled him. So it was, it was, um, yeah, I think he sort of squandered his opportunity to, to let Biden fail. I'm not mm-hmm. saying he would have, but there was but no opportunity yeah. for it to happen. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I totally agree with that. So at any rate, and I don't think people have reacted well to it. It doesn't seem like Trump really gained anything from his performance. So to me, it's almost even like it didn't even happen because I just don't think it really affected much. I don't know. No, because if anything, I think the the first polling that came out after that um, suggested that Biden had gained a little bit, mm-hmm. but in the mix of the other news that had been breaking around that time, including like the tax story, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's hard to and say. the COVID diagnosis. <laughs> yeah, that was soon after. So yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think right now, when people think of the presidential debate, they probably mostly think of the fact that President Trump was in all likelihood contagious during it and yeah. could have yeah. spread it to Vice President Biden. And it sounds like there were staffers of the of the debate that were infected. So, yeah, I mean, it seems more like a um, a part of the COVID diagnosis story now, as opposed to like mm-hmm, a standalone absolutely. story. Yeah. So by, by, you know, all of those measures, the, <laughs> the vice presidential debate was way more normative, yet, but may, probably also not necessarily very determinative um, in terms of where the race is going. Sure. I mean, I, I feel like it had the potential to be like, you know, you could look at it as a much more important vice presidential debate than usual. You know, normally they just aren't given much attention and they don't deserve a whole lot of attention. But this time you had two people who could potentially take over for a 70-something-year-old man in the middle of a pandemic that disproportionately affects elderly people, you know? (laughs) I did hear it reported last night, and maybe because of that, I heard uh, that um, it had the second highest ratings 
of all time of a televised a vice presidential debate. Huh. Um, and interestingly, the top three and were all when there was um, a female um, candidate. Ah, involved. interesting. So number huh. one apparently was Biden versus Palin. Okay. Um, so, which makes makes a lot of sense because a lot, she was very much an unknown at right. the time. So folks yeah. have been very interested. Right. Yeah, no, that does make sense. People were curious to see how that would turn out. <laughs> um, so I, I feel like I feel like they had an opportunity for it to be really um I don't know, revelatory, because you're getting an yeah, idea yeah. of like what these two individuals might be like as presidents, let alone vice presidents, you know. Um, but in you know, in the end I felt like it was just a much more typical debate. I saw some people complaining online that it was boring and all. I was like, well, it was, you know, it was a typical debate. Like (laughs) people were complaining, oh, they weren't answering the questions. They weren't, they weren't giving us new information. I'm like, yeah, pretty much a typical debate. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) These are the kinds of criticisms we always see. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do, you know, there, there were, there were some different analyses that I've read as to whether, you know, Harris or the vice president, um, you know, whether they did more for their, you know, their front runner, mm-hmm. um, in terms of advancing, you know, their cause. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and it's depends on one's point of view. And I think, um, there was a, a general sentiment that like Harris made a little bit more of an inroad, but that speaks to the fact that, you know, the way the campaigns are now positioning themselves, going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, you know, a lot of Pence's responses were sort of framed, very much in a in, in the, the direction of the base, and so um, that's not necessarily looking to be a winning strategy for their campaign. But mm-hmm. that's the the path they've chosen to pursue. And so mm-hmm. on the Harris side, she was um, kind of proceeding in the way of the Biden campaign as a whole. You know, trying mm-hmm. to um, get a little bit more enthusiasm from folks that they haven't been able to really lock in yet. So mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I do think. The, the viewership, you know, having um, a lot of households tuning in could be helpful. But typically VP debates, you know, even if there is a high level of interest, you don't see a lot of, you know, the polling doesn't suggest that they make a lot of difference in the end. So, Right. I, th- I thought I, I had sort of an interesting question going in because, you know, coming right off the COVID diagnosis, I thought, wow, if Trump does really poorly with the coronavirus and um, and it looks like he's not able to continue with the campaign and that mm-hmm. Pence, I don't even know how this would work legally, but if somehow Pence were to have to be take over as the nominee um, and you were looking at a potential Pence mm-hmm. presidency instead of a potential Trump presidency, like mm-hmm. – how might that change things? Because so much, I think, right now of our current um, polling status is a lot of anti-Trump sentiment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, does that transfer to Pence? You know, mm-hmm. I think probably a lot of it does, but not all of it. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like in um, in my crowds, at least, my like <laughs> more moderate conservative crowds, they're I'm hearing a lot of people who are willing to vote against Trump, but they may not be willing to vote against Pence, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. 
So I did have a moment there thinking like, oh my goodness, what is this diagnosis going to do to the race? And could Pence potentially take over and what would that do? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think as time goes on, it's clearer and clearer that that's not going to happen. But I did sort of have that thought going into the debate. Yeah. And if we had, you know, if we didn't had a different, a different president in this circumstance, one could readily imagine that with the events of the last, the past week, that, that, you know, different, very different scenario, of course, but you think back to George W. Bush and, um, and the occasions he had to have, um, at least, I think it was at least one occasion, but maybe two, where we had to have a medical procedure. Yeah, I think it was like a colonoscopy or something. (laughs) (laughs) And he was, you know, he had to be under anesthesia. So, you know, he officially um, bequeathed the powers of the presidency to to Vice President Cheney um, for that period of time. And one could imagine with the seriousness of a COVID diagnosis with, and it's unclear because of the way it's been, the White House has been releasing information, how serious it was at any point in time so far, but um, given you know the president's age and just the risks involved, one could imagine a different president having preemptively, you know, deputized the the vice president and said, you know, at least for this period of days while I'm hospitalized. Um, but that's not Trump, and <laughs> and uh, right, yeah. I don't know what it would take for Trump um, to do that of his own volition. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's such an unusual turn of a you know, set of circumstances where, um, you know, are, are potential voters going to be activated or moved in any way by the prospect of, of Pence taking over? Um, mm-hmm. And I do think, not to be morbid, but I think we wouldn't actually know that unless, you know, uh, the president passed away. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't think there's going to be a, a typical chain of command um, involved with this illness like we I mean I do think I mean I do think heaven forbid should he have to be put on a ventilator like I I do think in in that sort of situation where like literally you're not conscious I think in that sort of a situation you would see some sort of transfer of power but short of that I'm not sure yeah that's yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah 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 um in the debate in the vice presidential debate I was thinking a lot about the impression that each needed to strike, mm-hmm. sort of what they needed to convey and have be people's takeaway from them. Um, and I think I think it was a little clearer for Harris than Pence. Like I think Harris, she needed to come off. I mean, I think women in general and maybe African-American women in particular, they have a really hard line to walk, you know, because they have to be, they have to show that they can be strong and convincing, but they can't come off as angry. And, you know, they have to, they have to walk a narrower line than men do. Um, I think she overall did a really good job. She did not, in my mind, come across as angry. Um, She came across as pretty warm, I thought, and Mm -hmm. she Mm -hmm. smiled a lot. Um, she did her smiling, you know, some people interpret it as smirking. So I think a lot of it is like the eye of the beholder. If you already didn't like her, you probably weren't pleased. Mm -hmm. If you already did, you were probably very well pleased. I think for people who were in the middle and didn't have much of an impression, I think it was fine. I think she came off fine and I don't think there's anything to ding her for there. I will say that I, um, 
before I even knew who Kamala Harris was, before I had ever seen her picture, because I don't watch TV. I only listen to the radio. (laughs) So oftentimes I don't know what people look like. So before any of that, I remember listening to the Kavanaugh hearings. And I remember in some of her questioning of him, it sounded like she was dripping with contempt. (laughs) And I get that. Like I get where she was coming from. And I get that there were probably a lot of people who were glad for that because they were very angry. Mm -hmm. But to someone who was not already on her side, I think it came off very poorly. And um, I just remember forming a negative opinion then because I thought she wouldn't let him answer questions. And I thought she just sounded like she was so full of contempt and I found it really off-putting. So I will admit that that has been like (laughs) my formative impression of her this whole time. Um, I think it's gotten a little better over time. And I will say that I thought her performance in this debate went a long way to correcting that impression. Mm -hmm. So I think she did well. Um, but I'm not sure how many Democrats might recognize that that might've been other people's also formative impression of her and that she had a lot to overcome. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, yeah, I would say, I think that there's, um, an awareness. I mean, I, I wouldn't know if it, I can't speak to if it's like a, there's a broad awareness, but I think based on, um, you know, some of my circles and some of the, the things, the podcasts and media that I often consume, I think there is an, you know, particularly an understanding around the Kavanaugh hearing in general, um, or just more broadly, um, in light of, you know, the upcoming hearings, however that looks <laughs> for Amy Coney Barrett, um, mm-hmm. you know, that on both sides, there is a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, just kind of like bad blood or just, you know, residual mm-hmm. bad feeling about, yeah. Yeah. about that hearing, um, the Kavanaugh hearings. And so I think that, you know, there is an awareness that she was a pivotal figure in that. And from the democratic perspective, you know, that's seen as highly laudable, um, mm-hmm. some of the back, I think some of the backstory to her tone for, Pen, uh, for not Pence, <laughs> for Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. I recall is, um, really contested conversations they had leading up to the hearing, you know, when they mm-hmm. have those back and forths, you know, where the senators get to request certain information from the, mm-hmm. um, the nominee and whether or not that person they consider the nominee to have obfuscated or withheld things. And so I think in her case in particular, like she and um, uh, Amy Klobuchar, I I recall Mm -hmm. because she also sort of really stood out for her um, uh, more assertive posture in the hearing towards him. And so Mm -hmm. um, I recall a conversation about that. I do think that that in particular as well as some of the other like highly publicized uh, clips of, of Harris and he- other hearings, um, uh, you know, have definitely been picked up on and um, definitely have uh, appeared in advertisements, I think, from mm-hmm. the Trump campaign to cast her in a very sort of threatening, you know, uh, she's too aggressive, she's this and she's that. And so I can... Um, I can imagine, like you said, that seeing her more, I think, as, you know, a Democratic voter would often find her um, with the smiling, you know, doing the cooking videos <laughs> with her husband, those sorts of things. 
um, you know, I could I can see the way she was in this debate having helped along that way. Um, yeah, but I yeah. did also pick up on the um, not to go on about this too much, but I did also see, um, a, you know, a bit about the smirking and the mm-hmm. was she smiling too much. <laughs> was she overdoing mm-hmm. it? And it's just such a funny thing because, you know, there is the gendered thing of um, male candidates don't get so much scrutiny about facial expression and et cetera and affect. But, you know, Pence is a funny comparison point because he's known for his discipline in terms of. Right. He's it's like just, so flat. Yeah. Yeah. He's just not going to crack much of an expression. So right, I don't yeah. want, she's going to yeah, stand out in one way or another because he's just so neutral. Um, yeah. And yeah. it's got to be hard. I mean, it's it's hard to 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 like if you're hearing something that makes you angry, it's hard to project the expression that is going to be appropriate to the situation and yet not turn people off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a real challenge. I do think she has a real challenge ahead in any Amy Coney Barrett um hearing. She's mm-hmm. she's I mean, I think it's perfectly acceptable to be um assertive, even aggressive, but you really she's really going to have to be careful to not show contempt because really contempt is the thing that people will not forgive. Like if you I mean, I really think a much bigger part of um, Clinton's challenge in the last campaign was that whole like basket of deplorables comment. I mean, when people feel like um, someone holds them, them in contempt, they just, they react so strongly. Yeah. It's hard to overcome. So I think she's going to have to be careful. Yeah. And I, and I, I completely, um, you know, that's, that's something that I think there's um, a lot of validity to. And then at the same time, you know, when thinking about the entire electorate, you know, from from more of the uh, the Democratic perspective, um, you know, not not to make it a broader discussion about well, what's what's hypocritical or what's you know different standards for the different sides, but it's when you have a candidate like Trump who says the most you know audacious things. And the most offensive things, um, just as a part of who he is all of the time, you know, it's, that can get a little bit, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's frustrating is the word, but it could be kind of, it leads to a lot of cognitive dissonance, you know, around, you know, why is this one thing taken out of context or not, not to say that it was just one thing, but, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, here. Here I am talking about a smirk and facial expressions while the next day President Trump called Harris a monster. I mean, like, there's there's no comparison. <laughs> like, we, we can't decide what facial expression is most appropriate for her debate. And here he's calling her a monster. I mean, it's just yeah. – yeah, but that doesn't take away the fact that people do interpret – Mm-hmm. you know, expressions yeah. and it does help form their impression of someone. So that's why it matters. You know, Absolutely. I mean, the, yeah. the impression of Trump is already well-formed. Nobody's right. going right. to be surprised by hearing him say that. Yeah, absolutely. I think something that was interesting in this debate, since it was more of a typical debate and, you know, the candidate here was, was vice president Pence, who is, yeah, as we were just talking about known for having a very steady demeanor, he's, 
in terms of like his personality and his presentation, he's, you know, he's thought of as sort of the antithesis of, of the Trump style. Um, and, and yet at the same time, he was, you know, some of the commentary and, and I perceived this when I was watching it myself has been around the way he transgressed in terms of the time limits and mm -hmm. not letting the moderator cut him off. Um, and I think that like, someone counted it as something like 45 times he went over or interrupted, but he's so, he does it in such a, just a quieter and more socially, you know, acceptable way that, you know, it, it just makes one wonder in terms of, I don't, yeah, I, like I, I wasn't quite sure how I came away from that, but I was, just thinking about, you know, how someone will interpret that with that kind of packaging versus the really like overtly transgressive stuff um, that Trump right. did in his debate performance. Yeah, I think I think Pence had like three audiences and I think he definitely he definitely made his choice known. I mean, so the first part would be the base. We already talked about mm -hmm. they're really running a base campaign as opposed to reaching out. Um, the second part of it would just be Trump himself, you know, which is pretty neatly folded into his base. But I think he was trying to give the performance that Trump wanted him to give, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think a more like actually polite and like not interrupting as much, I think a, a performance like that would have served him better, but it probably would not have been as pleasing to Trump, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the third part, which I think he he should have focused more on and he didn't, would be the independent voters, especially yeah, the suburban women that we keep hearing so much about. And um, I think he probably sort of hoped to get there just by being polite um, or like putting on a facade of politeness. Um, but I think he probably failed because, um, because Harris is a woman, but also because Susan Page, the moderator yeah, is a woman yeah. and he just, um, he wasn't, he wasn't going to play nicely with them and he, he wasn't going to, you know, he was just <laughs> going to keep interrupting. And I thought it was especially obvious when Susan Page kept saying, uh, thank you. Mr. Pence or thank you, Mr. Vice President. And mm -hmm. she just kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And he just kept talking. It was so, it was uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think probably a lot of women, regardless of their political persuasion, mm -hmm. were probably pretty frustrated by that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I, I think particularly with that comparison point of the treatment of the moderator, but between the two debates, um, mm -hmm. You know, because Wallace was pretty round, roundly panned from, from mm -hmm. very different mm -hmm. perspectives around the way in which he tried to handle um, that debate. Um, and for Susan Page, you know, she, I think there were moments where she probably could have handled it a bit better. But all in all, I think the way in which the um, interruptions occurred and the talking over um, she, I think she did as best she could. Um, yeah. Because of the way I, I'm, that it was I'm hearing her criticized for not asking follow-up questions. Right. So I think that's a legitimate um, yeah. critique, but I haven't heard yet a lot of complaints about handling the interruptions because what are you going to do if you keep trying to stop somebody and they keep talking? 
I mean, if if you're trying to be like professional and civil, there's not much more you could do than what you did. Scream over him. I mean, like I could, I could like put on my mom stare and like. (laughs) And I wonder what her face screamed to get my kid's reaction, you know. But it's not like she could do that there. No, no. (laughs) Probably in the privacy of her own home, she could have controlled the situation, but. Yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, and of course, there were a lot of things that they did not clearly answer in the debate. I mean, with the, um, I think the ones of most importance would be Pence not answering about um, the prospect of a peaceful transfer of power. I mean, that's, that's big. That's big. Um, Neither of them really answering regarding the potential that they could um, succeed mm-hmm. <laughs> their that, candidate that, to the presidency. That a little bit confused, um, I have to say, because I didn't really expect. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected both of them to dodge that question. Um, as yeah. I mean, in all fairness, it's an awkward question, but it it's is. an important one too. Really you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. wasn't surprised. There were things that. Um, so, in different analyses, you know. I noticed a sort of, okay, well, this question was dodged on this side and this question was dodged on this side with sort of the emphasis being on the example that you gave from um, Vice President Pence of the, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the major issue of, will you peacefully <laughs> uh, transition? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think it was fair to point out that, you know, Harris didn't want to address, um, for example, the issue of the Supreme Court. Yes, and, that was going to be the other I, thing, yeah. I understood ex- politically. I understood why she wouldn't do mm-hmm. that, um, but I still think it was valid for that to be pointed out that that was one that and I think. But I think that's particularly common in vice presidential debates. Um, oh sure, yeah. I mean, that's a really questions. important issue, and I think that the Biden campaign is trying with all their might not to answer it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I and I understand why. I mean, I think either way they lose. You know, yeah, like. Yeah. If they if they say no, we're not going to engage in court packing, then they're really going to disappoint um, a big number of Democrats who are super frustrated at the um, nomination process. Mm-hmm. But if they say uh, yes, we're going to do it, then of course they're going to alienate moderates who are tempted to come over to their side. <laughs> So it's kind of a no-win no situation. Yeah, it's kind of, an, and in thinking about it too, unless you're sort of deep in the weeds, and I, as I think we both are, in mm-hmm. terms of what that means and what the precedent would be for it and um, implications, uh, I think for most voters, it's just not, it just sounds so like out of left field. You know, it's yeah. like for our lifetimes, the Supreme Court has yep. had justices and that's just the way it is. And I think there's not a lot of awareness that that's not, based in the constitution and there's a lot of different factors. And so you just don't want that sort of out there in the ether because mm-hmm. it's just scary. Um, the mm-hmm. is so scary. And I, I do think too, that um, so many things would have to align for that to even become something that could happen. And, you know, it's like, first they have to win the presidency and then they have to, they have to also take the Senate and they'll have to take it by enough of a margin. And then mm-hmm. we'll have to, it'll have to be addressed in the midst of other more pressing priorities, such as um, the pandemic. So 
I think it's one of those things where I don't think they want the mess of addressing it one way or another. Mm -hmm. It's not even necessarily going to be something that could even happen. Yeah. And maybe politically it is better to give these non-answers and not 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 outright lose (laughs) one side or the other. Yeah. The best answer I've heard so far from a few political commentators is that maybe Biden should say something to the effect of, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want Mm -hmm. us to get to that point. I hope we don't have to get there, you know, to sort of say, like, I hope I hope after the the election we can sort of calm down a little bit and start working together and that it doesn't come to that without totally foreclosing the possibility of doing so. But, you know, even that that's such a fine line. It's going to be interpreted in different ways Mm -hmm. and it's probably still not a win for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, is there any, do you, did you have any more thoughts on the vice presidential debate? Not really. Although I do, <laughs> I, I did want to just say that I think it's notable that the, um, in terms of, you know, it depends on what social media you consume, but it's really notable to me that, you know, a couple of days out from it, the only things that you're continuing to see really circulating widely are memes based on the unfortunate fly <laughs> that had landed <laughs> on Pence's head and in questions about his potential pink eye um, situation that was observed. So things like just that sort of, you know, just not important at all, you know, just sort of sideshow piece of it um, is what people are still talking about. So. Right. No, absolutely. So yeah, I was, I was, um, I was watching the debate. I was taking notes. I was um, increasingly as the evening went on zoning out because I was so turned you know, like I said, conflict sort of shuts me down. Mm-hmm. So, um, but when the fly happened, you know, glancing at the screen and I'm like, I think that's a fly. And I like went up and looked at the TV screen because we've been having a fly problem in that our house too. Lately. Change. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I killed four flies the other night just while making dinner. So <laughs> I went up to the TV screen to see whether it was on my TV screen or on him. And no, it was actually on him, you know? So yeah. I took a picture of the TV and posted it on Facebook, and it was the only comment I posted because it was like I just didn't have anything else to say. So yeah, <laughs> a lot of attention. Um, yeah. But then today I went back to rewatch some of the debate on YouTube because I had missed parts of it. Um, and one of the parts I was like, ah, no wonder I missed that. That's when the fly was on his head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Yeah, it was, uh, was kind of hard to pay attention to what was being said. <laughs> I mean, it was, I think what was so funny about it at the time too, besides I did the same, I had to check to see if it was in my, <laughs> in my house or if it was on screen, but the, it was just there for so long and it yes. just sort of reinforced this, you know, whether you think it's a, a good thing about Pence or a, a negative thing, the fact that he just... It's that fly just hung out there and unflappable. <laughs> Pence was unflappable. Pence <laughs> and the fly were both it. unflappable. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I think the levity was helpful at the time, oh, yeah. just in the context of everything else going on. Yes. I'm glad we had the fly to bring us all together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So to move on from there, um, let's for a few minutes talk about just sort of the state of the race in general with less than a month to go. I mean, we're so close to election day. And of course, a lot of people have already voted. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I think you said, did you did you vote already? I, I did. I, I did. I, yes. I used a Dropbox oh, and it's already been logged as received. So um, that's, that's great. kind of exciting. That's great. Yeah, I need to I need to figure out what I'm gonna do. I've been waffling and I need to get my ducks in a row. So <laughs> I you all really everyone enjoy... listening should should also get your ducks yeah. in a row. <laughs> yeah. I usually really enjoy voting in person and and I just but I, I didn't know what things would be like um mm-hmm. at this point. And so I had just preemptively requested an absentee ballot, but um everything's went a lot more smoothly um than I expected it to. And I'm hearing that from others as well. So I'm hoping that yeah, that it's a smooth experience for you. And good, good, good. Yeah, I usually, I very much enjoy voting in person because I am a dork who has always just totally <laughs> loved election day. And so I was find it exciting to go to the pool, polls. So that was sort of my, you know, for my first plan. And then I was like, well, I don't know if I want to go be around a bunch of people. So maybe I'll do a mail-in ballot. And then, um, and then you get nervous about, I mean, I think for the record, I think it is perfectly 100% acceptable and honorable to vote by mail, no question. Um, I do wonder a little bit, not even so much that something will get lost in the mail, but I worry about, well, what if my signature looks slightly different and my ballot yeah. gets rejected? Like I worry a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. So then I, you know, I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and, you know, and then people will have different perspectives based on where they where they live. And um, I, I do feel like we have a fairly um, robust system in Maryland in terms mm-hmm. of not setting up the situation where you're going to be more prone to error. Um, mm-hmm. I think like the signature issue was something I was really paranoid about as well. And also mm-hmm. I second guessed myself because I never use blue pens. And for some reason I had a blue pen and I didn't mark the ballot with it. Um, but I signed in a blue pen. I'm like, oh no, is it black ink? Should I have signed in black ink? Um, but then I like obsessively scoured the instructions again and I was like, no, it's okay. But um, I do think they're not as critical of signature match- matching. And I never signed the same way twice. So um, yeah. in Maryland, and we also, I know in Pennsylvania, close to us, you know, there's been a lot of um, concern about this naked ballot um, right. situation. Because where- they, they- Essentially require two envelopes yeah, for the ballot, right? Which, and they didn't at the primary, so that's kind of okay. So I think I think yeah, so if, of- you, if you're wondering what the naked ballot means, that's what it means: is that they're supposed to be included in two yes. envelopes, and if somebody only does one envelope, they're considering it naked. Yes. <laughs> maybe maybe they should be saying underdressed. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that was you know we're going to get people's attention um, <laughs> by calling it a naked ballot. Yeah, um, but yeah. So, yeah, the um, naked ballot has the potential to be 2020's hanging chad. So, oh, I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm I've seen kidding. a lot of retrospectives lately about mm-hmm. let's flash back to 2000, and I don't want to. <laughs> so, I haven't, right. <laughs> I've been like making myself not read those. Yeah. Um, so, we already talked about the relative lack of movement in the polls up to this point. And, but then you did mention that we're starting to see some movement now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that the polling average um, has gone up from like 7% or so to maybe, what did you say, 10 or 11% today? I think it's up to 10 for the first time, yeah. Okay. So it's important to note for people who don't pay much attention to polls. So there are polls done all the time. Um, 
And some of them are national polls. Some of them are state polls. Um, sometimes you see a poll of a particular district. Um, and they can vary quite a lot depending on how the pollsters weighted their responses. Um, so just to back up even further, um, pollsters want to make sure that they get a good representation of people answering their questions. And it's really hard to get that good representation. So generally what they'll do is they'll ask the people certain demographic questions, like their age, whether they went to college, their gender, that kind of thing, um, because they know sort of in general what um, mix of people are in a certain area and what mix of people tend to vote in a certain area. And they want to make sure that that mix aligns as well as possible with the mix that they actually had respond to the poll. So at any rate, they have to, um, they have to weight the different responses differently. So if say you have an area where there are 50% women, 50% men, but you only polled 40% women, you need to make those women count a little bit more so that you get a more accurate idea of the whole. So at any rate, depending on how pollsters weight their polls and lots of other factors, you're going to get a difference of um, a different result. So like some of the polls, like in the past few days, they were showing not just like a seven point difference, but like 17, mm-hmm. 17, 20 point difference in the in the candidates. Now, one poll, and if you see that big of a difference, you should definitely discount it and say mm-hmm. that that could be an aberration. But when you look at a polling average, like Jill just mentioned, um, what that does is it takes all the polls and sort of combines them together to look to see what comes down the middle. That is going to be much more accurate than any given poll on any given day. Um, So what we're seeing is that the polls are showing a bigger difference between Biden and Trump and kind of moving for the first time in months. So it seems like there's something going on here, probably a combination of everything, of the debate Mm -hmm. and COVID, uh, maybe the tax things. Like there's just something's happening to boost Biden a little bit and um, depress Trump a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you have anything else to say on that. Yeah, no, I, I, I just wanted to commend you for explaining that so so clearly <laughs> and succinctly. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I would just add that something that's been notable is the um, the span of time now where Biden's polls have had him uh, clearly over fifty percent, and so when you're thinking about um, just sort of the meaningfulness of someone's lead in a race like this. So flashing back to 2016, and there's there's been a lot of teeth gnashing and regrets afterwards that Clinton voters might have become kind of complacent because they showed the polls for her, or the polls were leaning in her direction for quite a long time, but she never really cleared 50%. And Mm -hmm. now for a solid span of weeks, Biden has not only cleared 50, he's, I think, It's like 50, I'd have to look at the latest, but he's been hanging around like 53 um, in a lot of the major polls. And so that speaks to something that's a little bit more predictive, not that anything's truly predictive, but it gives a sense that his chance, his odds are substantially better than Clinton's were in 2016. But things can always change. 
Right. And I have actually two points to sort of buoy what you're saying. Um, One, and this is something that I've started to explain to people, and I probably should just for the record here explain on the podcast. So we get so, you know, so many of us are justifiably sort of like disenchanted with polls because of what happened in 2016, where, you know, everybody expected Clinton to win and then Trump did. And so everybody, like nobody trusts Mm -hmm. polls anymore because the polls were so wrong in 2016. Like that's the general impression. Everybody says, well, I don't trust polls. They were wrong last Mm -hmm. time. Um, But on that count that, you know, we should maybe calm down a little bit because, (laughs) um, on the one hand, yes, pollsters made some mistakes in 2016. Mm-hmm. They have learned from those mistakes mm-hmm. and in some cases may even be overcorrecting for those mistakes and may therefore actually be showing Biden less ahead than he actually is mm-hmm. if they're mm-hmm. overcorrecting for last time's mistakes. The other point, and this is the much more important one, is that in 2016, I think most of the polls that people think of and talk about, they were national polls. Mm-hmm. They were looking at the reactions across the board. That is not the smartest way to go about things because <laughs> we do not elect a president by a national vote. And at the end of the day, Clinton actually did win the national vote. And so polls that showed her winning the national vote were right. <laughs> the problem was that. She did not win in particular states and then therefore did not get their state's electoral votes. And at mm-hmm. the end of the day, what really matters is the electoral college. So this year, I think there's been a lot more attention to state polls. Mm-hmm. And state polls, um, when aggregated, are going to be a lot more um, accurate mm-hmm. than a national poll. Yeah. And in particular... Um, state polls in swing states. Like right now, we're especially looking at Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, um, even like Georgia and Texas. Um, Those polls are going to be the ones to look at. Like there's just... I don't know, like uh, looking at a national poll can be sort of like personally gratifying or (laughs) agitating, but they're not what counts. What counts are the polls in those particular states. Mm -hmm. And so when a pollster today is looking at those state polls and saying that Biden is ahead, it's a much more um, realistic and accurate look at the race as opposed to the national polls of 2016. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely just thought that was a point worth making. Um, One more point is that I think it's important to remember in the 2016 race, both candidates had very high unfavorable impressions. Mm, Yes, yes. Both candidates were really disliked. I I felt like that's something that I wanted to like scream to my Democratic friends all through 2016 was, you don't know how much people dislike her. <laughs> like, like I just felt like the whole time, like, oh, you're, you're being too rosy about this. People really cannot stand her. I promise you people cannot stand her. <laughs> and, and I feel like the same thing should be shouted at my Republican friends this time. Mm-hmm. You don't know how much people dislike him. I mean, of course, people do know. 
Uh, everybody knows. <laughs> but I think it's important to remember the importance of those unfavorable ratings yeah. and that they can really drive people's voting behavior, the unfavorables. So we're, we're looking at a different situation now than we were then because Biden's unfavorables are not nearly as high as Trump's. Yeah. And particularly within um, certain demographics, like talking about, mm-hmm. we were talking about the senior vote um, mm-hmm. a while back and, and particularly in that, and in, in that age group, um, Biden is, yeah, his, his favorables are much higher than I think. Um, folks would respect expect because of the the tendency usually to be more Republican leaning voters, but there are there's a lot of fondness held for him mm-hmm. for for various reasons. But just a sort of a blanket, like even if you know I'm I'm not a Democrat, I still think of him as a a good person, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, that I think has really um, per- kind of buffered him against. Uh, you know, a more of a negative evaluation related to any particular policies or policy dodges mm-hmm. during this campaigning. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's it's so um, it can be so dangerous for a party to nominate a candidate with such a high unfavorable rating because um, it can really prove to just be like a lead weight that they mm-hmm. can't overcome, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, one more thing that's happened recently that we didn't mention um, that's pretty new news, but like this plot in Michigan to kidnap the governor. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like we are, we are truly living in a novel. This is. Yeah. Yeah. What else is going to happen this year? This is nuts. I think it was it was particularly chilling for me to read the detail that um, was reported on either later last evening or or this morning that the governor and her family, you know, had been alerted to this, you know, at some point in the recent past and they'd, she, they'd been moved by federal agents to keep them safe. Um, mm-hmm. And so just to think about living like that for this period of time while the investigation um, was mm-hmm. concluding um, and being under that level of threat, it was just really, really terrifying and not something yeah, I expected is- even amidst everything else that's been going on. Yeah. I don't know. I actually kind of, I'm not that I expected this in particular, but I sort of thought, especially in Michigan, where you had those protests, like right, those right. protests of people carrying firearms into the Capitol building, I thought, oh, that is a, that's a step over the line of what's appropriate. And if people have already taken that step over the line, what are they going to do next? You know? Mm-hmm. So I was, I was a little anxious about yeah, Michigan that. in particular, but I'm anxious about, about that more broadly yeah. too. I was thinking more of like scuffles between, you know, different factions or something like that. Not, yeah, this this coordinated plot that's been um, since revealed. And I think a couple of the conspirators um, were present. They were part of the armed protesters mm-hmm. way back then. Okay. So yeah. it's just, yeah, to trace, you know, what's gone on to occur back to that. Um, yeah. It's, it is really worrisome to think about other seeds that might have been planted. I mean, they were, I mean, just for anybody who happens to just be hearing about this for the first time, there is a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, um, potentially kidnap and hold hostage other people too. And they, I mean, this wasn't just something somebody talked about, like yeah. they cased out her property. They were doing explosive tests. Firearms training. I mean, they were 
yeah. in active preparation to do this before the election. So it's like, oh my gosh, we should not be living in a country where that kind of thing mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be. Yeah. Like that's yeah. just not an acceptable kind of a a plot to see in a in a healthy democracy. And the fact that we have seen it is to me very concerning about the health of our democracy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was definitely shaken to see that news. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I don't know. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks? Personally, I think, um, like we said at the beginning, the polls have been so steady that Trump really needed something to shake things up in a way that would be to his benefit. And so no, so far, nothing really has been. Mm-hmm. I don't see something at this point shaking it up to the degree that he needs. I think we are likely looking at a Biden win. Um, I mean, who knows? Who who knows what's going to happen next? But I think at this point, like, Americans really ought to be, like, thinking ahead as far as how we're going to handle whatever happens and how we're going to, you know, like I said, assure the health of our democracy. I don't know. Those are just real questions right now. They really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, thinking about some of the uncertainties that have come to light within the last several days in terms of, you know, the health of the president and, you know, from the uncertainties ranging from the sort of minor as to whether or not there'll be any more debates at all to thinking about, okay, will the election results come in quickly and cleanly and will they be contested and what will happen if, you know, one candidate, <laughs> probably Trump <laughs> um, in particular, says, I don't accept the results of this mm-hmm. election and what sort of um, what happens in that mix, you know. Right. And what of, will the margin be? I mean, that's going to yeah. be a huge question. Yeah. So if we're looking at another very tight election, that makes it more likely that there are going to be challenges. Mm-hmm. If there's a wider margin, that could make it less likely. So there's a lot of things in question right now, a lot of variables <laughs> that could impact how everything goes. Oh my. Oh, rest up. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel like I should find something more cheerful to end this episode on, but I'm not sure I can think of anything. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, we will see. And um, I think we will have some very interesting things to talk about after election day. one way or another when we get all the results i mean that's another point that everybody Mm -hmm. needs to remember with with so many people voting by mail-in ballot this time it's going to take longer to count everything Mm -hmm. i mean even if everything goes perfectly it's still going to take longer and everybody needs to be prepared for that yeah yeah i think that's that's very true and i i know that attention spans and memories are short um and I, you know, I think that a lot of folks have already forgotten, you know, thinking back to 2000, um, mm-hmm. have forgotten how long that kind of took its way, you know, took to wind its way through the court and for that to be settled. And this is a, a potentially much messier um, election all around. Um, but we do have a lot of, um, you know, not as much of the youth vote as maybe anyone would like to see, because it would be great if, if all folks were participating, 
But I, I do think we do have um, a number of first time voters in this election. And so I'm hoping, you know, across parties, and I'm hoping that those folks will not become cynical or, um, you know, think that their vote didn't matter if this process takes um, a longer time than what they expect. Right. You know, <laughs> from the like really nerdy perspective, um, I think probably an interesting thing about living in this time, if you're a first time voter, is that you, you really do have to kind of dive in and understand how the process works. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, learning about like what happens when there's an electoral tie. Like that's the, that's the kind of thing that mm-hmm. I only ever learned about because I was a political science major. But no, now that's like a, a real thing for people to look into, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's true. I mean, just the mechanics of voting and, and making that choice as to should I go in person? Should I vote early? Should I do the absentee option? How do I do that? How, <laughs> how do I make sure I do that correctly? Right. And also knowing, I mean, not that most of us are going to have this expertise, but to be paying attention to this kind of thing, knowing about the differences between the states and how they Mm -hmm. do things. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing I've been hearing when it comes to um, absentee ballot counting, some states will allow their polls or whatever to start – processing the ballots before election day and other ones won't let them start until mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. 8 p.m. on election day. So actually Florida allows the processing to begin early. I don't think they can count before election day, but they can like take them out of the envelopes, prepare them to go through the machines, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So they actually get their absentee ballots counted pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good. If Florida's tight, at least it shouldn't take forever to get those results. Yeah. Um, other states, they don't even let them start until like election night. And so it can take longer. I think New York takes a long time. So, yeah. it, you know, it's yeah. going to depend on the state. Yeah. So I say if you're, if you're watching um, election coverage, listen to that kind of a thing. Make sure whoever you're listening to knows what they're talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think – following on the radio, <laughs> as yeah. you often do, Julie, is probably yeah. recommended over uh, cable television in particular. Yeah. Um, but, you know, not to my general any news over another source, but. Yeah. My general rule is if they're trying to get me upset, then I don't want to listen to them. So <laughs> one way or the other, if they're trying to like prompt some emotion in me, then I don't trust them. I would recommend NPR. I would, um, for anybody who really wants to get into the weeds, I would really recommend 538. Mm -hmm. So they're very good. And I think they're, um, from what I've seen, I think they're, even their analysis is really pretty even handed. Mm -hmm. So I think they're a good place to go. Yeah. And they, they, they provide, um, you know, some, some of it gets a little wonkish, but um, mm-hmm. they do provide, yeah. I think, a lot of accessible explanation to what's going on as well. Um, mm-hmm. So for someone who is just trying to apprehend exactly what the process is going to be, um, they're a good source for that. Right, right, right. Yes. I normally listen to their podcast, which is super wonkish, but I think probably their website would be a little bit more helpful to somebody who wants <laughs> That is true. It's hard for me to gauge <laughs> gauge wonk yeah. level at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and they're it. just like unab- unabashed on their on their wonk level on the yeah, podcast. That's true. <laughs> Especially when they're doing model talks. So Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
All right. Well, Jill, thank you so much for, yeah, for coming you. back on the podcast and talking this through. I think it's kind of nice to check in and just sort of get a uh, get a sense of where we are and how things are progressing. So, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. Well, thank thank you. Take care. You too. I hope you enjoyed that latest round of Kitchen Sink Punditry with Dr. Jill Scheibler. Next week's episode will feature a conversation that I am so excited to share with you. In it, I talk with Laura Kelly Finucci about how to talk to children about politics and current events. Laura is a writer, speaker, author, and mother to five young boys. She is an award-winning, nationally syndicated columnist whose writing has been featured on NPR, On Being, The Christian Century, People Magazine, and in other outlets. She has authored seven books, including Everyday Sacrament, The Messy Grace of Parenting, and Grieving Together, A Couple's Journey Through Miscarriage. I hope you'll come back for our conversation. Before I end, I want to let you know that last week I had the pleasure of being a guest on Beth Willoughby's new podcast called A Welcome Grace. There we chatted about political polarization, questions to ask yourself if you're still considering who to vote for, and where we can place our hope as we move through this election season. I hope you'll go check it out. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, you'll leave a rating or review so others can find it. I'd appreciate any shares, too. Your help is the best way to let others know about the podcast. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. If you have ideas for topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, please email me at julie.walsh.thesewalls at gmail.com. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.